This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet, and good for farmers, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Yamini Loya. From the mountains of Bhutan, where I know we have lots of listeners, a special shout-out to you guys and to the fisheries of the Maldives. In this month's episode of Farms Food Future, we examine the relationship between agriculture and climate change across South Asia. In a region as diverse as this, the devastating impacts of climate change are many and varied. One unpredicted storm can ruin an entire crop and a farmer's food and financial security for a season. As these storms become more frequent, Farms Food Future finds out how climate change impacts agriculture and well-being in the South Asia region. We also reflect on 75 years of independence in India and Pakistan and learn about IFAD's work in Bhutan and the Maldives. Having spoken to youth leaders and participants, we wrap up our Agribusiness Hubs mini-series with a conversation with the donors who make this work possible. Our guests tell us about their hopes for the Climate Change Summit, COP27, which takes place in November, and two Indian Recipes for Change chefs share what changes they would like world leaders to make to improve climate resilience. Plus, Kitchen Connections takes us through their new UN cookbook, released in time for the upcoming Climate Summit. And in this bumper episode, we check in on our work in Bangladesh, and Tajikistan. Finally, we get an overview of how well development is being done in rural communities. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifat.org. You can subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please rate us. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Yamini Loya in Delhi and with me is Brian Thompson in Rome. Last month, India and Pakistan celebrated 75 years of independence. Home to more than 1.5 billion people, both countries will be crucial to achieving the sustainable development goals. In the last 75 years, they have both made tremendous progress. And today, they face difficult challenges. We caught up with Meera Mishra and Fida Muhammad who have been critical to molding IFAD's country program in India and Pakistan to take stock of each country's achievements and look at what lies ahead. Mira, Fida, what are the highlights of the progress in agriculture and rural development that India and Pakistan have made since independence? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's always a bit hard to comment on a large country like India. But in terms of, uh, you know, if one would look uh, in hindsight uh, at, at the progress that has been made by the country, uh, certainly the most enormous progress has been in the area of um, how uh, the, the country uh, from being food independent uh, became a net exporter of food. And this is particularly relevant when you think of India's massive population of 1.3 billion uh, people. And, you know, it is because of this uh, food self-sufficiency that uh, the government would provide free ration to over 800 million people during the entire COVID period, and this is continuing. So that is certainly a very, very major um, stride that uh, the country has made. Uh, but then there is also uh, now an emerging 
success uh, in India's story on diversification from food grains to other high-value commodities. Uh, so uh, as a result, India is today the largest uh, producer of milk, uh, also pulses and livestock, and also is a top exporter for uh, you know uh, spices and shrimps. So so the diversification has started, and India's white revolution story in terms of uh, milk production and marketing through organized groups of uh, women was uh, the Amul story is also a very very inspiring uh, uh, story. Fida, what about Pakistan? With respect to the um, growth of agriculture sector, over the last uh, three to four decades, the uh, sector has grown between three to four percent. Um, and in the current year, the growth in agriculture has been recorded at 4.4 percent. And this is uh, a result of the government uh, interventions, uh, which are basically in four uh, different areas. The first area, uh, which uh, is the major government focus, is the improvement and access to improved seed, rather uh, promoting the use of certified seed by farmers. The second area that government is promoting is uh, investment in mechanization. Uh, the fourth area, which has been uh, one of the priority in terms of investment, is uh, the irrigation structure and also investment in bigger infrastructure such as uh, water storages, uh, dams, reservoirs, and rainwater harvesting. And the fourth area uh, is the access to credit. That's impressive progress. What do you think the biggest challenges are faced by these countries in terms of food security and building sustainable food systems? So first, as we know, uh, resources are finite, but population is growing. Uh, we all know that by 2050, it is expected that the world's population will be 10 billion. India already has a very, very massive uh, population base. So there is obviously a growing competition for resources like land, like water, like energy. And, you know, many aquifers are, are also drying up. Aside from the the um, uh, the challenges, uh, the, the demand on uh, the finite resources. The other is climate change. There has been a very sharp increase uh, to the extreme weather events. And these are the ones that are impacting farmers the most today. The, the climate change, as it impacts the farmers, you know, they, they sow the seed and then it doesn't rain or it rains too much. So, so there are these challenges and related to this is the issue of food loss. Now, this happens at multiple levels from production, as I was mentioning, to post-harvest losses, which are entirely preventable. And then, of course, uh, also to food wastage at the consumption level. There is also the aspect uh, or, or the challenge that is emerging from what we call hidden hunger, or which is micronutrient uh, deficiencies. Fida, what do you think Pakistan's challenges are? The most important uh, challenges with respect to food security is the uh, persistent land fragmentation. And uh, the land holdings are getting smaller and smaller, which makes uh, uh, the production of uh, agriculture, farming and production is a, uh, is a uh, unprofitable undertaking for the smallholder farmers. So uh, productivity and uh, profitability of the agriculture sector is declining. The second major challenge is that 
uh, smallholder farmers are today unorganized and they are not uh, integrated into the market system and they are not financially included. Over the last few uh, years, Pakistan has achieved self-sufficiency in uh, major uh, crops such as uh, wheat uh, and uh, rice, where Pakistan has always been uh, surplus, which are the staple food products. However, in terms of diversification of diet, the agriculture sector has not performed really well. So the challenge is to promote diversification. What do you think are some of the solutions to these challenges? Uh, the solutions uh, exist, but uh, they are they are uh, emerging solutions and uh, are being tried. So, for example, you know, technology is is one solution to deal with uh, you know these uh, these crops that are exposed to multiple stress. Science has come up with uh, uh, the the stress tolerant varieties of certain seeds. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, science has helped us in developing. Um, uh, nutrition, uh, you know, uh, what, what we call the nutrition sensitive uh, crops, but also uh, adding to the nutrition of the uh, so bio bio fortification of uh, crops like uh, maize, like rice, uh, so that uh, uh, while people while we promote better consumption practices, even uh, as the change happens. Uh, communities uh, are able to get more nutrition from that same crop. There are two decisions of the government, I would say, uh, or or uh, the proposed strategy of the government, which are likely to have uh, to generate um, major gains. One is the focus on farmers' income. So by setting the target of doubling farmers' income, the government has made a major shift towards making agriculture more remunerative for the farmers and not just focusing on production and productivity enhancement, which had been the story in the past. So agriculture, unless it is remunerative, will not be attractive to the farmers. And that shift is likely to bring about uh, major uh, achievements in this area. And the other is the active recognition of uh, climate change and its impact on agriculture. Agriculture. So, uh, you know, combined with services like soil health cards, digital advisories for farmers, and, um, you know, the farmers are now being shifted or supported to shift. Uh, from traditional water-guzzling crops like uh, paddy and wheat uh, to climate-resilient crops such as millets, maize, horticultural crops. And in some states, you know, you'll be surprised the government is incentivizing farmers to make this shift. And this is a very vital step also from the view, um, point of view of sustainable solutions and will have lasting uh, impact in the years to see. So those are some that I can list off. And of course, you know, for a large country like this, there would be many more which I'm not focusing on. If we look at the um, agriculture sector in the country, 90% of the farmers are smallholders and they together uh, own or uh, cultivate 45% of the land uh, in the country. So smallholder farmers are very important. And it is here where IFAD can actually contribute and support the government of Pakistan to actually promote diversification of uh, the smallholder agriculture uh, so that it is not only made demand-driven but also commercially viable for the smallholder farmers. And here comes the uh, 
intervention and investment with regard to adoption of uh, improved practices, uh, new techniques, and also introducing technologies that are affordable and appropriate for the smallholder farmers. That was Meera Mishra from the India Country Office and Fida Muhammad from the Pakistan Country Office talking about the achievements and challenges of these two South Asian countries 75 years after they became independent. Up next, we turn to Bhutan. You're listening to Farms Food Future, episode 36, with me, Brian Thompson, in Rome and Yamini Lohia in Delhi. We move on now to our first country highlight, Bhutan. In a country where more than 70% of the population relies on agriculture, Bhutan is working with IFAD to expand its market and opportunities for farmers. In 2015, IFAD and the Bhutanese government launched a project called Carlep. It assists small-scale farmers in the country's eastern region. Farmers receive grants as well as modern technology like new tools and greenhouses. Now in its final year, the project's website estimates that as many as 28,000 farmers received assistance in this seven-year period. We spoke with the director, Dorji Wangchuk, to learn more about the project's goals and its results so far. I mean, there were seven projects in the past. So Carlab is the eighth project in Bhutan. And that too, uh, it was focused uh, in the eastern region of the country. The initial projects uh, since 1981 uh, focused more on building irrigation canals, bringing water to the fields. Then alongside, they also uh, worked on generation of technologies supporting agriculture research and development. Then gradually, uh, it uh, moved into uh, enhancing rural access, building farm roads. Then came in the market access uh, growth project. So thereby, thereby, the project focused on marketing aspect, uh, training farmers on uh, grading, sorting, uh, and uh, promoting the market uh, information and knowledge. So then now it is the Carlev, which we are looking for the commercialization with the uh, resilient livelihood enhancement. So it is totally uh, based on the earlier projects, which is in a progressive manner. And what was the goal of the Carlev project? Uh, the goal of the Carlev project is to increase the smallholder farmers' income and thereby uh, reduce the poverty uh, through commercialization uh, of uh, vegetable and dairy, which is linked to the nationally organized value chains. And how does CARLAP work towards this goal? Uh, basically, so if, when we look at uh, or we take the agriculture uh, uh, interventions, so basically it com- encompasses uh, three aspects. So number one, it's the production, uh, I mean inputs, then the processing part, and then finally, the marketing aspects. So in terms of uh, inputs, uh, we are uh, focusing both on the uh, direct inputs as well as the infrastructure. So for instance, uh, we provide high-yielding varieties, climate-resilient crop varieties, improved dairy breeds. So that's and also supporting with uh, greenhouses for uh, prote- uh, protected agriculture. The On the other side, if you look at the infrastructure, so we are also... Uh, renovating the irrigation canals and uh, providing with uh, the uh, modern technologies 
the smart irrigation technology using drips and sprinklers so to improve the water use efficiency and uh, also uh, we are working uh, on climate smart villages whereby we focus is on bringing i mean building the irrigation networks piped networks into the fields so unlike in the past where the irrigation was focused only on uh, canal irrigation now we are focusing on the distribution network system on terms of uh, the processing uh, and value addition so once the produce uh, has been produced so if it's not consumed in the market uh, freshly so then we'll have to add values to that so in terms of vegetable uh, we are working on basically bhutan is uh, known for chili so uh, farmers produce a lot of chilies so uh, we are promoting the solar dryers for drying chilies and also promoting women enterprises like um, pickling of chilies so in terms of marketing so we are all, uh, we are focusing on uh, building the linkages the farmers group with the processing plant and also uh, in terms of vegetables uh, we have not only vegetables both livestock and agriculture so we have initiated under the government's directive that our school and hospital feeding programs by the local uh, vegetable produce as you near the end of this project because it's supposed to end in 2025 i believe what are some yeah. results that you have seen yeah i mean uh, if you look at the riddles, uh, results so it's uh, quite impressive so if you look at when in terms of production so the production has gone by over almost 30% in vegetables and uh, around uh, 154% uh, in milk so if you look at even the farmers income generation so it has gone by almost uh, 30% having worked with carlop and seen all these other projects happening in bhutan how do you feel about the state of the environment and climate change in bhutan and in the region now of course yes uh, we are moving into right direction and i mean there are things which will have to work more so uh, especially we are uh, in terms of the uh, water use efficiency irrigation is very critical for the uh, farming sector so in the past uh, as i mentioned al- uh, already so we were just focusing on bringing uh, water from point a to b now we are getting into much deeper level uh, not uh, only looking at the uh, wetland areas also we are looking at the dryland areas where my farmers uh, grow vegetables and fruits so in those areas we will have to look uh, i mean I look at bringing drips irrigation system uh, and sprinkler irrigation system so we are moving from kind of even open source uh, i mean open canals to the pipe networks so these are the uh, kind of uh, climate uh, uh, resilient technologies we are trying to promote that was dorji wangchuk with an update on the carlet project in bhutan and if you want to hear more from us please tune in to any of our 36 podcasts and over 350 reports from across the world of farms food future In episode 35 we talked about renewable energies in Africa. Meanwhile, in episode 34 we focused on nutrition issues across Africa. And in episode 33 we looked at how building resilience can protect communities from shocks like COVID, climate change and conflict. Next month in episode 37 our focus turns to the climate summit in Egypt. We'll be looking at the big issues and how food security and farming 
are playing an even bigger part than ever in COP27. Coming up, we hear from a farmer in Bhutan. This is Farm's Food Future. I'm Yamini Loya in Delhi, and with me is Brand Thompson in Rome. Shering Dorji is one of the farmers in the east of Bhutan who received a grant from Carlep. Before the grant, Shering could not support his family on farming alone. Now he turns a profit each year and has plans to expand his crops further. Alison Lecce spoke with Shering about the ways Carlep Assistance expanded his business. Listen as he tells us a bit about his farm and why he began working with Carlep. Actually, I raise uh, fruits like avocado, avocado, persimmon, pear, peach, kiwi, and dragon fruits. So could you just tell me about your experience as a farmer? What's your day-to-day activities like? Uh, first of all, I'm very proud to be uh, one of the farmers in Bhutan. Uh, I can say that uh, unlike my parents, uh, I'm very privileged to uh, work with the more modern technologies, such as uh, using deep irrigation sprinkles, uh, farming. Uh, this helps us a lot in uh, like in modern agriculture and uh, moreover uh, like uh, there are many technologies it has um, uh, like modern technologies has uh, made uh, us much easier for us to work and, and uh, like moreover there's le- less intervention of human uh, moreover like workers and this has helped us to to save our resources as well as energies. And how has the Carla project improved your success as a farmer? To be true, uh, I was I was unemployed for a few years and I have to depend on my wife uh, as she is a civil servant and I, I was solely dependent on her. And, uh, and I heard that, that there is a, a, such a pro- program and pro- proposal coming up in the Carla office and I was very interested uh, to uh, to give a proposal, a project proposal to them. And uh, finally, I was one of the recipients here and interviewing in front of you, madam. Uh, and I'm very grateful for them uh, for giving such an opportunity to take up an agriculture uh, business, I guess the agriculture business. I, uh, I used to raise, uh, produce avocado. Last year, I uh, I have sold avocado, most probably I've sold avocado and I've, I got over 2.1 million by selling the avocado and rest, uh, uh, rest uh, like uh, pure peach, uh, dragon fruit, uh, I'm planning to sell next season. At the moment, I'm very uh, happy. I'm very happy that the uh, Kale project has provided such project to take and I'm very happy farmer as well as a husband and a father. I'm very happy being a farmer. So could you tell me a little bit more about EFAD's project and how they what what they do with you, what kind of technologies they give you? Sorry. Uh, I've received financial support from Carlet in the form of matching grant uh, where I receive 50% of the total investment from them. And I was able to make purchases from their support and rest. Uh, apart from the financial support, uh, the focal person from Caleb office, 
they used to monitor and guide uh, my works regularly. And uh, uh, the challenges I faced, they used to help me with it, uh, to overcome those challenges. And uh, in collaboration with Kalip, uh, there is ARDC, Agriculture Research and Development Center Office. They used to give uh, like technical support, like in grafting and uh, propagation plan, plant propagation and all. So you talked a little bit about the produce that you're going to grow for next year, but what plans do you have for the future for your farm? Next year, avocado, it takes uh, nine months to grow. Nine months. It takes nine months, and after nine months, I can seal it. Well, next year, I'm planning to uh, give focus on kiwi, kiwi. This year, kiwi, I have very less kiwi. And next year, I'm planning to give more focus on kiwi. Oh, furthermore, I would love to learn more about the agriculture and modern technologies to use in my farm. That was sharing Dorji, one of the beneficiaries of the Carlet program, talking to Alison Lecce. And you can find out more about this project by going to www.carlet.gov.bt. Up next, we move north to south in the region and speak to the Permanent Secretary for Agriculture and Fisheries in the Maldives. You're listening to Farms Food Future, episode 36, and I'm Yamini Luya in Delhi with Brian Thompson in Rome. The Maldives is an island nation with a prominent fishing industry but a small agriculture sector. As an island, it is susceptible to climate change. And because it relies heavily on agricultural imports, the effects of climate change in other countries has major consequences in the Maldives as well. To combat this insecurity, the Maldives has been working to improve its own agriculture sector. The Ministry of Fisheries, Marine Resources and Agriculture partnered with IFAD to create an agribusiness programme that will expand the agriculture sector and shift the island away from import dependence. Alison Lecce spoke with the Maldive government's permanent secretary, Dr. Aminath Shafir, about climate change in the Maldives and the agribusiness program that began in 2020. She begins by telling us a bit more about the Maldives' agricultural background. Well, uh, Maldives uh, is a small island nation, so in terms of uh, agriculture, we represent uh, a small uh, contribution to the GDP officially, but unofficially there's uh, over 7,000 farmers and farming families uh, working in the agriculture sector, uh, which may not be, uh, you know, consistently working, but more in the subsistence nature. In, in terms of land, we mean that we have a small island. Uh, we have about 1,170 islands, after which you know only 200 is inhabited, and then we have other types of uh, islands where we put in the services, and then we have other islands that we allocate for fisheries and agriculture development. So, in in from those islands, we have been renting islands for commercial agriculture as well. So there are different categories of farming happening in the Maldives, like a smallholder, which uses the backyard and available plots around the homes and in the island. So in terms of farming and farming related activities, uh, we just uh, you know measure this in terms of our, the livelihood opportunities in the Maldives uh, and also livelihood income generation, food and nutrition and uh, you know 
especially when we see what we went through during the pandemic, the initial stages of the pandemic, uh, we came to realize that, you know, a lot of people uh, employed in the tourism sector was jobless. And, uh, you know, the only opportunity that, you know, the locals have was participating in agricultural activities where food and livelihood is, you know, income to a certain amount is uh, guaranteed or ensured to them. So, what are the most pressing climate change issues in the Maldives right now? Yeah, uh, like I said, uh, you know, the changing environment, uh, because earlier the farmers can tell the monsoons, you know, they will anticipate what type of rainfall will be there. But now that guarantee is, you know, it's very difficult to forecast also the weather patterns. You know, all of a sudden we might have, a, uh, you know, downpour and all the products that we have, uh, you know, all the farms can get flooded and, you know, crops like uh, watermelon and chilies and things like uh, such products are very popular in the Maldives and it has a huge market. Like, so, uh, you know, the, the crop loss can be, we cannot really, you know, compensate for that. There's no program to compensate. And also we don't have the insurance programs to cover these kind of losses. And uh, also it's uh, very much, uh, you know, climate related where we have uh, erosion soil spray, um, I mean, soil spray. And also sometimes during the drier season, we have, uh, you know, it's becoming very dry, very dry. And this is a perfect environment for pest and disease outbreak. And sometimes we have this kind of, uh, you know, uh, pest problems that are, you know, uh, cross-cutting in all crops, including the crops like coconuts, where which is not only we don't only use as a food, but as a protection of our islands as well. And apart from that, we are also an importing country. We have to, to a certain limit, we have to import food because we cannot become sufficient in all the foods we are grown. Uh, as an importing country, we are vulnerable to the, you know, uh, environmental shocks in other countries as well. It doesn't have to be necessarily uh, in the Maldives, but, uh, you know, a flood in India might affect a lot of our crops that is imported, you know. You've talked a lot about the impact of climate change on yielding crops and imports, but could you tell me a little bit about the impact on the people themselves? Yeah, people themselves, uh, you know, it has uh, impact on our mobility as well. Like we have to be mobile to be productive. So directly it is an issue uh, for the people. And also sometimes we have loss of homes, loss of their, uh, in terms of property, their fishing boats, you know, even their uh, the farming, we might have destruction of those kind of in small infrastructure and also, you know, their plants like uh, breadfruit, uh, coconuts, it might fall. So we have all, kind, all these kind of losses. Tell me a bit about the Maldives agribusiness program. What does it aim to do? We understand that uh, in Maldives, the farmers are not organized in terms of, you know, they don't have the consistency of uh, doing farming as a business. 
they might do as a, you know as a business and livelihood so unless we organize uh, the farmers it is very difficult to for um, for sustainability of this kind of livelihood so a more agribusiness project in fact um, look into the increase in the sustainability of the income from the farmers and also to ensure food security this i'm talking about in much broader goals of the project so how we want to bring this aspect into uh, the project we have planned it in a way that we have um, interventions in the areas to organize the small farmers uh, for uh, for climate smart production systems and also we try to in uh, you know intervene and uh, into the market uh, connections because uh, as i said before because each island is uh, separated by seas it is very difficult to have our own transport so we have to have some sort of market connections organized in terms of transport and the you know the or the market itself you know there are more than 200 resorts in the maldives and the food demand is so high so uh, what the farmers grow if we can have this linkages to the markets uh, that will have a financial benefit for them and they might uh, you know they can sustain their activity and also uh, agriculture uh, farming is an area where the capacity is very poor in the country we don't have agricultural schools here so what happens is uh, the ministry it, through its extension services we train the farmers which is not enough for them to you know take um, make technically sound decisions in the farming uh, agricultural activities so we have to look into the capacity building and specifically due to the climate change uh, challenges we would like to have uh, introduce climate smart technologies uh, like greenhouses and you know watering systems well planned and and so how can international organizations like efad um, support the maldives in adapting to climate change well there are so many things international organizations can do but in terms of the agriculture sector i think uh if i or any other organization who is looking into the agriculture and fisheries uh, can also look into you know strengthening our capacity in the sectors because uh you know even uh, for a project to implement a project we need a lot of technical you know support but from the country itself we are not able to get the uh, you know technical people so we have been looking for an extension specialist for few months now we don't have that capacity in the country so i think in the future if we don't invest uh, you know projects like um, come up with in donor support if we don't invest into the capacity building aspect of uh, you know the of the sector we will not be able to you know efficiently and effectively implement these programs as well we have to have people based in the islands because it's very difficult to provide the support of extension to an island, you know another 200 islands by a small group of uh, experts in the ministry so 
capacity building in this area is uh, you know, a huge uh, requirement for the sector because we don't have the agricultural universities you know, establishing uh, training centers or training institutes, uh, providing the services like uh, soil testing, water testing, you know, pathogen um, information about pathogen identification. All the services has to be there for a uh, you know sector to flourish. We don't have those kind of uh, you know institutional strengths as well. So I think those are the kind of areas that uh, you know organizations can look into. That was Dr. Shafia from the Maldives Ministry of Fisheries, Marine Resources and Agriculture. Up next, we hear from our Recipes for Change chefs in India. This is Farms Food Future, episode 36, with me, Brian Thompson, in Rome, and guest presenter Yamini Lahia in Delhi. We now move over to India, where we spoke with two familiar faces from IFA's Recipes for Change campaign about their experiences with climate change. Alison Lecce has this report. Chef Thomas Zacharias and Chef Anahita Dondi are part of IFA's Recipes for Change, a collection of recipes and chefs from around the world. Both based in India, Chef Zacharias and Chef Dondi have experienced similar impacts of climate change. Chef Dondi said she is unable to rely on certain ingredients as a result. So um, I have seen, uh, you know, a couple of changes, actually, if I can say that. Um, in India, we eat extremely seasonally. Uh, we eat extremely locally. Um, you know, we do support our local farmers and what's growing around us because, as you might know, India's, um, you know, a place where agriculture is given a lot of importance and it takes up a lot of our economy as well. Um, but what I've seen in the last couple of years is um, certain um, ingredients that I was getting in my city were not available because of climate change. And... Um, just thinking about a few of them, um, like millets, um, even though they are extremely uh, healthy and very easily to be grown because they don't use too much water, but the farmers have stopped using and growing those ingredients because those are not cash crops. And um, millets actually give back to the soil a lot. They actually put back a lot of nutrients to the, into the soil as well. So I, I have seen, um, you know, both sides of um, climate change. And uh, I would say in the communities that I've you know, I've been working with the chefs that I've been working with, the restaurants that I've been working with. I see this impact where certain ingredients that used to be commonly available are not available anymore. Chef Zacharias pointed out that for some people, climate change affects more than just their food. In uh, tribal communities, from what I understand, there are vegetables uh, which have over the years become so scarce uh, that they are almost extinct, uh, and these are ingredients that are not only food for these communities, but also medicine. Uh, these are communities that haven't really had to rely on modern medicine for millennia, and um, now they are seeing that they are having to shift to um, urban urban diets for their subsistence. Uh, so it's really altering their kind of sense of identity as well in a lot of ways. Chef Dondi and Chef Zacharias may be limited due to unpredictable weather and crops but that doesn't stop them from making waves in the kitchen. 
Chef Dondi said she is in constant contact with farmers to stay updated on harvests. So I think the first and most important, um, uh, I mean, the first and most important rule for a chef would be to kind of work with their farmer. I've always said this, that a chef is a person who is in the middle of a farmer and a consumer. We are the ones who speak to farmers and get to know what's in season, what's growing locally and abundantly so that we can use that in our cooking. So um, the first uh, practice that I follow is I'm always connected with my farmers. I'm speaking to them. I know what's growing in which region in India. I know what's growing in which season. Um, I know the practices that they're adhering too um, so that's the first thing and the second thing is to take those practices those ingredients and put them into your kitchen and create dishes which are sustainable uh, because you know where the produce is coming from and secondly you're making sure that there is a nutritional value attached to, to the food that you're serving so it is flavorful it is um, looking beautiful but it's also important to serve nutritious food to your customers that are coming in as for chef zacharias education is a major part of nurturing healthy food systems uh, i ran a restaurant called the bombay canteen in mumbai and while i was a chef there i think the idea was um using um the restaurant and the menu as a kind of template to tell these larger stories around food and sustainability um, and highlighting the issues uh, through the spectrum of uh, delicious food. Um, I think increasingly there's a huge disconnect between the people, places and the ecosystems that are the source of our food and the end consumers in the cities who are driving the demand. These chefs are not only cooks, but also community leaders. And with world leaders meeting next month at COP27, Chef Zacharias has an important message for them. I think for me, two things that uh, I'd like uh, addressed. One is uh, just taking into account the nuances of localized food systems as opposed to larger, broader goals that are more region-specific. Uh, and the second is, I think, uh, something that's ignored in conversations around food and climate change is food sovereignty. Um, and, I mean, and the right of people to have healthy, culturally appropriate food and define the, and for them to define their own food and agricultural systems. It's So it's not just about food security anymore, it's also about food sovereignty and something that's rooted in like grassroots food, food movements, uh, highlights the need for, for a democratic food system and one that involves inputs from citizens as well as producers. That was Alison Lecce talking to Chef Thomas Zacharias and Chef Anahita Dondi. And for more information on Recipes for Change, go to ifad.org forward slash recipes for change. Up next, we have a report from Bangladesh. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson in Rome with Yamini Lohia in Delhi. Now it's time for a report from journalist Kasa Alum, who went to visit the farmers and families in the village of Jarakanna in the Hayor region of Bangladesh. Lying close to the border with India, the community here has suffered from seasonal flooding for generations. But climate change is making things worse. In this report, Kasa talks to the community and the experts who have changed things for the better and looks at how they are adapting to climate change. There are places in Bangladesh that flood for up to eight months of the year. 
Can you imagine what that must be like? I can barely stand the drizzle in the UK. For centuries though, villagers here have just about managed. Until now. I'm going somewhere that could hold the key to helping millions living on floodplains all over the world adapt, survive and thrive. It's a beautiful day today and a beautiful day for a boat trip. We're going to be spending about an hour and a half actually from here in northeastern Bangladesh in the Shunamganj region going to somewhere that is incredibly remote. We're talking about somewhere in the Hoa region that gets completely isolated during the wet season, during the monsoons. Jarakuna is a village in the Haor region, right at the border with India. It's surrounded on three sides by rains that wash down from the foothills of the Himalayas. It's beautiful here. The air is cool and fresh, even in 30 degrees heat. This is absolutely insane. Amazing to learn that this region exports a lot of sand all around the country. The guys were just telling me that there's a lot of natural resource here, sand, stone, whereas many other places in the country export just stealing fish and rice. This place also has a very good sand and stone market, which means it is really good for its economy, but the fact is it's just so isolated, so that's part of the problem. The area is blessed with natural resources and fertile land, but people here struggle because of the flooding. For generations, each family's had to pay hundreds of pounds each year to build shabby flood defences that constantly break. It's holding them back in so many ways. Before, it used to be uh, rudimentary defences made by the villagers themselves. Um, it would buy them time, but not enough. And there'd always be fighting to keep the land. So we are here. Let's get off. A crowd gathers as we arrive, and I can't lie, it feels a bit like I'm a celebrity. But I've come to hear their story, though. So it's time to listen to the village elders talk. My name is Muhammad Sahidul Alam and I'm 55 years old. I do agriculture work. Mainly I cultivate paddy and grow vegetables. I have been doing this since I was 20 years old. We used to struggle a lot earlier. We needed to build protection around our villages, which used to be very difficult to do after harvesting. It was a matter of great concern to be able to live in our houses in midst of big waves and erosion and to protect our houses. When water entered, we were not able to harvest the paddy from the field. The farmers only have a few days to harvest their crops when the rains come. A whole season's food depends on a few days. It's high stakes and they get stressed about it, along with everything else like money or if their houses will survive. 2004 was one of the worst. Back in 2004, I almost lost my house. The water was very high. We struggled to keep our families safe. Also, there was no place to keep our livestock either. Of course, it was sad, but we suffered extreme anxiety about losing our houses. Where did you stay? The water entered my house. We built a makeshift elevated platform to live in the house. 
Another elder remembers being my age and having to stay awake on the night's watch while everyone else slept. His job was to raise the alarm if the flooding started. We used to cut down trees to build protective walls against the entering points of the water. We spent the whole day gathering these materials to build protection. We used to work through the nights too. As long as there was wind blowing, we all worked. Most of the time, all the young people of the villages were involved in protecting the village. Still, most of the villagers had to participate in this work, as we all used to be in this panic. I suddenly feel self-conscious at all my privilege. Here, there are no insurance schemes or safety nets. This is life or death, survival or ruin. Families fall into massive debt to rebuild their houses after big floods with promises to lenders they'll pay it back with next year's crop money. Our relatives walked by our houses and warned us that land was eroding. We used to take loans to cover the cost of building village protections. We used to repay the loan money with the income from the following years. The most moving story I heard happened in 2017. The flooding was so bad that year that all the crops were destroyed. People had to choose whether to feed their families or protect their homes. Uh, in 2017, we could not even harvest any crop due to the flood. How could we manage to protect our houses, or how could we even survive? Even if we would not eat, we had to spend money for building the protection to save our houses. A massive flash flood washed away everything. We could not harvest our crops or shelter from erosion. At that time, the standing paddy in the fields and the stored food in our homes all were washed by the sudden flooding. But in 2020, things changed. IFAD and the local government spent around $100,000 to help the villagers here build a solid defence wall. Since then, instead of moving away, younger people in the village actually want to stay. Lovely to meet you. What's your name? Sabir Ahmed. Uh, My name is Sabir Ahmed. I'm 25. We're standing on the village protection wall around my house. It has been three years since the village protection wall was built and was completed in 2020. The quality of life has developed a lot. The money we invested after building protective walls against floods, now we can spend on education and health. These village protection walls have accelerated the commuting of the villagers inside and outside of the village. Houses and families are interconnected now, and going to schools and mosques has become easy and comfortable. We used to wade through muddy roads. Now the protection wall works as a road and keeps the village accessible. You know, sometimes when we talk about climate change, we forget that it's not just about money and housing, but about people's lives too, the freedom to do whatever they want. Before this protection wall, water pollution was also acute as the water remained clogged. It has also contributed to enhancing the beauty of the village, especially during the monsoon season. It's gone from one of the worst affected areas in the Haor to one of the safest. People here are happy, they're earning more money, they're living better lives. And there's actually been a boom of people wanting to move here from elsewhere. Before, many did not want to come to our village. And now, 
It is more beautiful than many others. Before, people from other villages would not let their children marry off to people from my village due to the inaccessibility and vulnerability to erosion. But that has also changed now. Families in Jarakona are bombarded with marriage proposals now. Their social status has gone through the roof. Not that a good-looking lad like Sabir needs any help finding a bride. And clearly we know lots of people like to get married. Um, does that mean that people here have more marriage proposals, do you think? I mean, you, you're a good-looking guy. Do you get some marriage proposals here now? So is that the big secret here then? Just spend thousands of dollars on building big walls? Not quite. The real secret is something called an early warning flash flood system. So the flash flood early warning system can predict a bit in advance uh, what, what courses the water might take. So you know for sure how much um, water you can expect. They provide enough time for the villagers to have time to harvest the crops and take it to safety. The system uses satellites and modern tech to model when the heavy rains will hit. When the system's triggered, word spread to the village. No more night's watch, no more anxiety, and the farmers have enough time to save most of their crops. The idea came out of a request from a lot of the villagers that they needed something that would give them advance warning. Um, and then we got a lot of technical help from partners and the local government engineering department was able to implement it. To get the word out as quick as they can, leaders use the mosque. Villagers are used to hearing the call to prayer or azan ring out five times a day. Now, if there's a flood, they hear warnings from the mosque about it as well. The local authority informs the villagers about the imminent flood with a microphone. When the announcement is about the flash flood, everyone listens to it. An announcement also made in local mosques where imams warn everyone about the flood. Based on the announcement, everyone prepares to harvest early before the flood hits, relocate livestock and keep them in safer places. We can bring half of the harvest home. Learning about all this has made me really proud, actually. I'm proud that Bangladesh is showing people how they can adapt to climate change. Sabir thinks what happens here needs to happen everywhere. Yes, of course. We need it. We need the village protection. There are other villages that also need such protection walls. If such village protection walls are built, that will bring a lot of good for all of us. That was an amazing interview. And that was such inspiring to speak to these people and, and actually find that this flood defense right here, this thing has now given them security, given them safety, given these kids somewhere that they think will last, you know? It's something we take for granted, I take for granted in the UK that my house is always going to be there, but these thought every single day they worried that their home was going to wash away. But now they don't have that worry anymore because they have this flood defense and they know their house is going to be there and this is their family home that's going to be there. And that is something that is really, yeah, you can't buy that, can you? So. Hopefully that's something that in the future other villages around here and all across the world will be able to rely on as well. Next time, I'll be finding out about the simple solutions being used here to save people's lives. This is Bangladesh, the climate frontline.
was Kasa Alam reporting from Bangladesh. And you can hear more of his reports on his YouTube channel, Kasa with a Q Vision. Next up, the fifth part of our series on how to make the best of investments in small-scale farming communities, this time in the Solomon Islands. This is Farm's Food Future, and I am Yamini Loya in Delhi with Brian Thompson in Rome. Ben Norton is Emeritus Associate Professor at the University of Utah. His work focuses on improving agricultural production and, most importantly, sustainability with rural communities in developing countries over many years. Recently, he has been cooperating with IFAD on the Livestock and Pasture Development Project in Tajikistan. This ran over nine years up till 2021. The project covers 10 districts. The environment is generally mountainous with a Mediterranean climate, which brings snow in winter, rain in spring and dry summers. The soil is silty and easily dislodged if vegetable cover is reduced, meaning soil erosion can be widespread. Facing poverty is the overall issue facing people living there. Households typically have only five to six sheep or goats, one cow, some chickens and maybe a donkey. Production of milk was very low, with cows producing just five to six litres a day. This should be around 15 litres per day. The other major issue is overgrazing on the rangelands. I asked Ben what the project had done to improve household incomes over its nine-year project cycle. The project had many avenues of assistance. Uh, one of the critical ones was improving the growth of fodder crops, um, like lucerne and barley, uh, for winter feed. Because in the wintertime, the animals are kept in barns. Um, and sometimes grazing close to the village. But it was critical to provide enough feed in the winter so that they wouldn't move onto the rangelands too early in the springtime when the soils are saturated and uh, easily eroded. And so uh, that was one important aspect. But the other one that we worked with, that I, I worked with particularly, was to improve the management of grazing on the rangelands. And uh, my emphasis was on a rotational grazing program where the, um, uh, the livestock were, were grouped into large numbers uh, from every household in the village of, of a small village or every household in a major sector of a village, combined their household herds, and they were taken onto the rangeland where a map had been provided of small grazing unit areas. And they would graze these unit areas just for a few days and then move on to the next area. And the design was to allow for only one grazing period per year on a small area. And for the rest of the year, the vegetation grew robustly. And you, uh, uh, you have a, uh, a totally different animal forage situation with a lot more forage and uh, uh, a lot more productive animals. So the, the, um, uh, the program of rotational grazing uh, was communicated to the villagers uh, to their uh, 
um, pasture users unions, PUUs, uh, which were formed in every village where the project worked. And, uh, and the, the chairman of the pasture users union appointed a grazing supervisor. And his job was to tell the herders where to take these large herds and how long to stay there. And so it was a very organized system of grazing management on the rangelands. And the results were fairly dramatic. Um, these were analyzed after the eight years of the project. It ran from 2013 to 2021. And the statistical analysis showed convincingly that there was a significant increase in cattle weights, in milk yield, and the sale of milk products, and in household income, which was the major challenge that the, that the project addressed. And that was to improve the uh, household incomes and food security of households in the region. Ben, you're working on a report, Management of Livestock Using Rotational Grazing, a critical intervention to promote food security and environmental sustainability in rural Tajikistan. Can you give me a synopsis of, of what are the main findings and are there any surprises in there? Yes, Brian. Uh, I think the main findings I've been alluding to already, and that was that the Im implementation of a rotational grazing plan that I've described, which was really aimed at uh, recovery from degradation, as opposed to simply exploiting the resource. And the, re the vegetation did recover and erosion was reduced. Um, so the uh, uh, household productivity of their animals increased in the first phase, which covered five districts. Uh, it was reported that numbers of animals held by an individual household increased by 60%. Uh, and that was simply, I think, because the, the cows were conceiving at a higher rate, higher rate of conception, higher rate of calving, and, uh, and that would be a, a one-year delay effect on having more forage so that you have a, a bigger cow that can carry um, a fetus to term. And if you don't have calves, you don't have milk. So um, improving the productivity of, of the herd overall was critical to increasing the milk supply for a household. And in the case of, of the women, in women-headed households, selling milk and milk products is basically their only source of income. And in the second phase of a, an additional five districts that ran from 2017 to 2021, they, uh, the monitoring and evaluation unit recorded a 600% increase in the income of women per capita uh, in, um, 
in terms of, of animal products, livestock products that were sold. And that was because it was rising from a very low base of almost no income at all, uh, which gives the, the women a lot more freedom and uh, a lot more um, security in terms of both food and, and household wealth. That was Professor Ben Norton of the University of Utah. Ben went on to say that farmers are in fact already reducing their livestock numbers as production levels of livestock has improved so much. Rotational grazing is still being practiced and expectations are that neighboring villages will be copying the successful management practices from villages in the project. Coming up, we talk to Kitchen Connections. The Kitchen Connection Alliance, in close cooperation with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, has developed an international cookbook to support the way that we eat for ourselves and for the planet. Celebrity chefs, organic farmers, indigenous cooks, and food activists have shared their favorite dishes that are not only healthy and delicious, but also sustainable. This cookbook features for each recipe its nutritional information and also its estimated carbon footprints so you can support sustainable food systems from your own kitchen. I spoke to the author and driving force behind putting this together, Kitchen Connections' Erlene Cruz. I asked her about the main issues the cookbook tries to highlight. The issues that the book tries to highlight are related to what consumers, what the average person can actually do to improve the food system. As we know, coming out of the UN Food System Summit, there are many challenges to the food system as it stands, but the book is centered around what people like you and I can actually do to improve it. So it talks about food waste, it talks about biodiversity, it talks about sustainable consumption and production, it also talks about climate change. These are the main topics that are addressed with supporting recipes. How important is, is the power of, of storytelling, advocacy, and, and culture in dealing with these issues that you're highlighting? The point of this book is to advocate for better food systems in ways that continue to promote cultures and to respect local cultures. Because the truth is that the example that I mentioned is really hard to navigate, right? How do you tell someone, stop doing what you've been doing for hundreds of years? Um, and so this book is a, is a guide of sorts. Um, it's not a prescriptive guide. It's not saying do this and don't do that, but rather this is an ethical um, advocate you know, advocacy approach to actually eating better for ourselves and the planet. Taking us through that a bit more closely, Erlene, how, how does the, the cookbook, while respecting um, the traditional ways of, of, of eating, of, of, of consuming food, try to transform the way we approach food? How, how does it do that? Well, the book looks to local cultures for the solutions. You know, that the reality is that while there might be more modern examples of ways that are not sustainable um, in terms of our consumption patterns in the food system, cultures are rich with examples of, you know, ways that really are wonderful for human and planetary health. And, and these are ways that trace back to millennia. A lot of us are saying now, you know, eat the way our great grandmothers used to eat. And it couldn't be more true, actually. You know, um, Chef Massimo Botuda shares a recipe um, that has... 
um, you know, old breadcrumbs that his nona used to cook. And, you know, it's a great example of how this approach to eating has been prevalent in many cultures around the world for many, many years. And so the goal is to really uh, help people tap into the richness of their cultures and, and to look at, you know, the cultural gatekeepers, the home cooks, the farmers, the indigenous peoples that have really beautiful recipes already, and then to bring these to life um, in the cookbook. What is the UN's involvement in all of this, Erlene? Well, to trace back to the history of this book, um, you know, Kitchen Connection was approached uh, by the UN Department of Global Communications to support the Act Now campaign, which took place a few years ago. And the goal was to leverage our network of chefs, home cooks, indigenous peoples, and farmers to contribute recipes that were, um, you know, good for the planet. And the goal was to, at the end of that, put together the United Nations Climate Cookbook. And so we, as Kitchen Connection, had been approached to produce cookbooks in the past by a publisher, but we didn't really think that idea was really innovative in and of itself to put together a book that had international recipes. Um, when the idea for the United Nations Climate Cookbook uh, came about, we were really excited about that because we saw that as a truly innovative effort um, to not just produce a cookbook, but to tell a story that had a very powerful message. And so we um, were supportive of that effort. Unfortunately, the department ran out of resources to carry that forward. And we were then told, you know, you could go to other UN agencies and and really crowdsource um, and, and develop this project. So that's exactly what we did um, with support of, from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, funding from the government of the Netherlands, and in consultation with many agencies like IFAD, UNESCO, UNEP, UN Women, we were able to produce a really wonderful collaborative effort that speaks to all of the topics um, that we mentioned. And that also includes over 150 people from 75 communities to actually share their recipes, share their cultures, and support the UN vision of you know, having a, a, a food system that's supportive of human and planetary health. So as, as a final question, Erlene, could you share with us a little taste of, of the cookbook um, by telling us maybe a bit more about what is your favorite recipe in there? Um, favorite is, is difficult to answer because I have not cooked through the entire cookbook. I've um, been so busy with the rest of the team um, to actually get this book out that I haven't had the luxury to sit down and cook it all. Uh, I promised myself that I will have my Julia Child moment with the book when I have it in my hands um, and I will go through all 75. But I will say on the surface, a recipe that really stands out is the black pipian recipe, the black bean recipe by chef Rosalia Chechuk. And she is an indigenous um, chef from the Mayan community in Mexico. Um, we conducted all of the nutrition calculations for the recipes, as well as all of the carbon calculations for the recipes. And this recipe has the lowest carbon emissions out of all of the 75 recipes, which is not surprising because we know that beans are wonderful for human and planetary health. They require less water. They're very protein dense. They're generally really nutritious and relatively easy to grow. They require less lands than other protein sources. And so 
it's really a wonderful emblematic example of how we should approach food moving forward and how we should approach our protein sources moving forward. Um, the data supports that this is a good um, protein source, that this is a good ingredient, that this is a good recipe, um, and it's no surprise. So I really can't wait to have more of it um, in my life. And uh, I really hope that you know others also are able to try it and are inspired to taste uh, a bit of the Mayan culture and all of the other cultures that are featured. That was Kitchen Connections Alliance Erlene Cruz. You can order your copy of the cookbook in support of the United Nations for People and Planet on Amazon.com and in bookstores in the US and Canada and soon worldwide. Up next, we have the final part of our mini-series on youth and agribusiness hubs. This is Farms Food Future with me, Yamini Loya and Brian Thompson. Next up, we're learning more about our youth agribusiness hubs. We talked to leaders and participants, and now it's time to talk to one of the donors who makes this work possible. Robert Meloche is the head of programs at the Visa Foundation. The foundation has worked with IFAD since 2020. Listen as Robert tells our reporter, Alison Lecce, why the foundation chose to invest in youth agribusiness development. Yeah, we come to agri really out of our focus of supporting gender-inclusive small businesses. And then this program in particular, um, it's just sort of impossible to ignore these significant demographic and economic trends that that drove the design of this by, by your colleagues. I mean, Africa's the youngest and fast-growing economy in the world. And according to the IMF, there'll be more young people entering Africa's workforce each year than the rest of the world combined by 2045, uh, you know, a trillion dollars in an ag sector, 110 million people entering the labor market. So there are these massive demographic and economic trends that really drove uh, the decision. That is just a question of how can we, instead of treating that as a, a crisis, how can we treat that as an opportunity? Um, how can we spark, uh, really for us, entrepreneurial ingenuity of these young people? Could you walk me through the early stages of the project and tell me a bit about the level of collaboration that was involved? We started these conversations in 2020 and the pandemic hit, right? So we, uh, and then we shifted at the foundation to do um, significant amount of sort of disaster response and emergency response, humanitarian response. And so this program ended up being a very long um, cycle from initial conversation to funding, which is not usual for us because of the impacts of the pandemic. But it also did allow us that time to really say like, well, what would be the most useful? How does this work? How are we going to plan for it? What are the markets that we're looking at? And so it, um, the only upside to that delay was that it, it allowed us to fine tune things a bit more. What results do you hope to see from the program? Yeah, well, we have the, of course, with any program, we have the specific targets for jobs created and uh, you know, businesses launched. And um, for me, there's some kind of bigger outcomes that are, are going to be harder to measure. But one is helping to change the perception among youth about what it means to work in ag. And that's a, you know, that's a tall order, obviously. But, you know, like anywhere in the world, many young people want to work in tech. Right. But tech at its best is not an end into itself. Like the tech has to serve something else. Like, is it in this case, tech can really help to feed a continent. And as we've seen recently with the supply chain challenges, both through the pandemic and now with the food insecurity, which again, um, you know, is coming into the public broader consciousness, which of course has never gone away. 
entering tech to serve in a sector like ag, I'm hoping we can knit those stories together for youth. And then the other big outcome for me is that, you know, we talk about sustainable agriculture and that these hubs themselves become sustainable. And right now, uh, this is funded by donor community by EFI itself. And of course, each of the local implementing orgs is raising money and putting money in. Um, but I'm hoping by demonstrating a successful model that the commercial players in the sector at the local, regional, global level, and the people who are buying these cash crops and you know exporting them will recognize that this is an incredible investment in their own supply chain, right? And that this program really won't need necessarily donor funding in the future. Um, because they'll recognize this is a way to train a next generation that's going to keep that whole system running. So those are the two sort of uber outcomes for me um, that I that I hope to see. What stood out about this program compared to other projects that you may have worked with? Yeah, what I was really attracted to was the focus on both skills-based job placement and entrepreneurship. Many sort of incubator programs, accelerator programs, we're trying to launch new businesses, and we support many of those around the world, and they're great. But sometimes we we have this recognition that, you know, everyone's going to just launch a business on day one, and that's just not realistic. In most contexts, successful entrepreneurs come out of another successful business. They don't just start, you know, from scratch, especially day one after, you know, after university or something like that. So what was appealing to me was that this was focused on giving practical, real-world job experience to individuals and then creating pathways and support for them to launch businesses in the future, as opposed to, we'll put you through an incubator for six weeks and then, you know, good luck, you know, go start your firm uh, without any networks and, the ex and, and maybe even the technical expertise and the understanding of the markets. The other part that I found really appealing about this was the way EFOD combined their core strengths working in the public sector and their, you know, vast network of of uh, government partners and agri-ministries um, with, though, this reliance on and commitment to, radical commitment to, really in this program, private and local actors. It wasn't a top-down program. It was really taking the talent locally and uh, and connecting it with these public sector supports. And so that is also, unfortunately, pretty unusual, uh, that where you get, especially an organization the size of EFOD and a part of the larger global development sector, putting such an emphasis on local implementers. And so that, to me, was um, kind of the best of both worlds, to have local orgs who knew the local context, but then this connect in, connection, sorry, to the public sector and local governments. But then, you know, the real promise of this program is to connect those hubs together and the learnings from them and best practice that you can share across the continent. So it's a pretty unusual program and really um, congrats to the whole team at EFOD for designing it. It was a pretty easy decision with, with those two things. And as I said before, with the significant support from BMZ, it, it seemed like the most obvious decision we'd made in years. So it was uh, we were delighted to support it. That was Robert Melouche telling us a little bit more about the Agribusiness Hubs partnership with the Visa Foundation. Coming up, we have the next installment of our series with EFAD's Research and Impact Assessment Division. You're listening to Farms Food Future. Now it's time to join EFAD's Research and Impact Assessment Division in part six on how we look at doing development better. Well, that's through in-depth on-the-ground research. The people in RIA measure the impact our projects have on incomes, productivity, market access, resilience, nutrition, and much, much more. In podcasts 31 through 36, 
we've talked about in-depth assessments of projects from the Solomon Islands to Zambia and Tajikistan to India. I spoke with Aslihan Arslan about the overall report on impact assessments for the IFAD 11 project cycle, which was delivered early in the month to the board of IFAD. This report aggregates the findings of around 25% of IFAD's investment portfolio in this funding cycle, which ran from 2019 through 2021. The results were then aggregated over all 96 projects that were running. She gave me the headline numbers. For IFAD 11, we had said we're going to improve incomes of 44 million people. But this analysis allowed us to calculate and we have actually exceeded all of the targets. So for income, instead of 44, which was our target, we have improved incomes of 77 million people. For production, target was 47. We have improved production of 62 million people. For market access, target was 46. We have improved 64 million people's market access. Uh, in terms of resilience, our target was 24 million. And we have improved actually 38 million people's resilience. Only for nutrition, which was a 12 million target, number of people with improved nutrition, we have actually failed to achieve that. So we only have about 1 million with improved household dietary diversity. So this analysis basically concludes with this reporting. And now we go to the board in September and we report on our commitments and these targets and achievements. So how are these results going to be used? They're, they're very impressive. How are they going to be used to move forward? From each and every of these 24 projects that we do impact assessments for, we generate very detailed knowledge about impacts on like hundreds of indicators in each impact assessment report and the channels through which impact might happen. Maybe in some cases, actually, we have constraints that actually prevented the impact from happening. And then we, we draw lessons learned for each project as well as overall lessons learned and then we're feeding these into future project designs where uh, each project design team will be able to actually look from a drop-down menu, let's say from livestock projects in nearest North Africa region. So what have we learned? And if you're designing another livestock pasture improvement project in Kyrgyzstan, let's say, or Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, then you'll be able to see, okay, what actually worked in those settings, uh, both socioeconomic and agroecological similarity, of course, right? You need to check. Uh, where you're designing the new project and what it's actually similar to. And then you'll be able to see all the lessons learned and then the constraints and then maybe some of the learnings that we have put there from both quantitative and qualitative analyses to be able to design a better project in the future. Why do you think it's important to be able to estimate impacts? You have to have a really systematic approach and rigorous approach so you can report to your board for transparency, transparency accountability, um, and learning, as I've mentioned before. Um, and with these impact assessments, the approach that we take uh, to sampling, which more or less resembles our universe, the rigorous analysis uh, for each project that we conduct, the aggregation meta-analysis, as well as a projection that allows us to calculate those numbers of millions of people that have achieved each and every target that we set, is actually very important because these questions are important for donors, right? If you're putting not even just not even billion, right? Even if you put a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, poor countries maybe contribute less to IFAD, but still they contribute and they need to know the answer 
to that very important question, okay, what did we achieve for all these investments? And they need to be able to put their faith in the rigor of the approach. And that's why I think it's very critical, uh, this impact assessment work that we do. Thanks to IFAD's Aslihan Arslan. And that brings us to the end of Podcast 35. Thanks to our fabulous producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti. Also our contributors, that include Alison Lecce in Rome and Kaza Alom in Bangladesh and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. That's www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Next month in Podcast 37, we'll be talking climate change and food security as the UNFCCC COP27 in Egypt is ready to set sail. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at ifad.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please remember to rate us. We'll be back at the end of October with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Yamini Loya and the team here at IFAD. Thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.